Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I hope that you're doing well. Um, A few weeks ago, I recorded an episode where we spoke a little bit about TikTok and its role in upcoming African elections. Now, we know that uh, the Nigerian elections have taken place and I have just been trying to find out, you know, what the role TikTok has played in the elections um, in Nigeria. And... um, You know, I think I mentioned it in the episode that um, I recorded that it's still a little bit, uh, how can I say, Uh, I suppose it's still a little bit shaky to say that um, African elections are, uh, in terms of social media, that TikTok would be the forerunner, um, because obviously Twitter, Facebook, and other platforms, Instagram, have been in existence for longer and people have been using them for a longer time. So they tend to be the more targeted social media platforms uh, when civil society organizations and corporate uh, or social media companies themselves uh, start to speak about uh, the role that um, their platforms may play in uh, online violence and physical violence, election-related violence. And so... Again, when I was trying to find out, uh, you know, what people were saying about TikTok in the build-up to the elections, and since, you do find that there hasn't been as much uh, kind of noise around TikTok. Um, but then I think what's been interesting has been uh, that TikTok itself, I think, put out some messaging around the platform and, you know, um, condemning any use of it for violence, especially um, election-related violence. Uh, And they did do that again last year with uh, the Kenyan elections. Um, And I came across this thread by a um, someone called Janine. Their handle is Janine Tony, and they actually work at TikTok. Um, They are the sports and gaming partnership lead. And That was a really interesting thread because the thread is actually from 2022 and it talks about the role that TikTok had been playing in uh, sort of leveraging opposition opponents in the build-up to the elections. And I'll just read through uh, Janine Tony's tweets. Um, And the first tweet says, I love TikTok and how it engages with an important demographic. While many may argue about Twitter's significance in campaigns and election, there is a slow yet powerful rise in the Nigerian politics TikTok thread of a few things I've seen so far. And so Janine starts to share different videos from TikTok of how young people in particular have been using this platform to uh, mobilize or rally around um, opposition candidates, one of whom was Peter Obi 
who, um, from my reading, seems to have been a candidate that young people resonated with particularly. And so obviously with TikTok being some, something that young people use a lot of, they took to TikTok to engage in campaigning on his behalf or uh, speaking about the merits of him as an opposition candidate. And so Janine says, Peter Obi's hashtag on TikTok has been viewed at least 6.5 million times. And this was as of June 2022. Um, creators on TikTok, this is what Janine continues to say, creators on TikTok are finding engaging ways of pushing the Peter Obi 2023 hashtag. So uh, there's a, a hashtag that was quite big at the time. Um, so this hashtag's train with hundreds and thousands of comments and engagement to back them up. Um, creators on TikTok are finding engaging ways. Oh, so this is the same thing that um, is in the next uh, tweet. And then Janine says, it's important to note that Peter Obi's brand positioning has been youth-based. It's no surprise that a huge number of young creators on TikTok have found ways of selling his candidacy. This helps with recognition at the polls. So, um, you know, just reinforcing again how young people have been using uh, TikTok to speak to this very favored candidate among them. And then I think um, one of the more interesting uh, things in this Twitter thread that Janine points out is how, and this is what Janine says, Quote, some of the TikTok messaging isn't just in visual content. It's also the caption urging people to get their PVCs, um, which I think are a form of identification at the polls uh, for voters. And Janine continues and says, creators draw you in with lifestyle content, but then there's an underlying message. And, you know, then there's a, a video that's posted of TikTok where um, a user is talking about, um, it's a joke about a relationship. And, you know, the user's very well made up. She looks very stylish. And she's talking about something completely unrelated. But still, there is the messaging or the use of hashtags um, that support the Peter Obi campaign. And so it's a, a very interesting way of getting young people engaged in something political without necessarily talking about it. And so this, this thread continues, and then um, Janine goes on to compare uh, the use of TikTok for Peter Obi with other candidates. And one of those candidates is called Bola Tinubu. And Janine says, and Bola Tinubu TikTok makes do with lots of Yoruba music in driving the message. In fact, indigenous languages have been key in influencing perception on uh, Nigeria decides 2023 hashtag on t on TikTok, and um, uh, Janine also points out that Bola Tinubu Tinubu's uh, following is a little bit older, a little bit more conservative, and so uh, the style of messaging is very different, and the reach on TikTok is very very different. It's not as high as um, with Peter Obi because it, he's not necessarily speaking to a youth demographic. And so uh, the last tweet on this thread, thread that I'll read of Janine says, I have found a different type of TikTok campaigning for Bola Ahmed Tinubu, 
one that has to do with the traditional photos and music. The creativity is very different from what is obtained from Peter Obi's campaigns, campaigners who find ways to innovate. And so um, it's quite interesting that um, uh, this was already being discussed last year, and it seems to be something that will continue to happen. I think perhaps if TikTok is still a vibrant platform uh, four or five years from now when um, the next elections would happen in most of the countries that you know are having elections currently, uh, you might see a bigger role for TikTok. You might see uh, more of a ma mass rallying and uh, use of it, especially as other social media platforms seem to be in their decline. So I just thought to start with a little bit of that um, to follow up on the episode. Um, we've seen what's happened in Nigeria. There's still other countries that have elections upcoming. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens um, with those other countries. But today's episode is actually not <laughs> about elections or politics in that way. Today we are looking at Afrobeats and uh, the use of social media and how that has impacted its growth. Or my question is, is that why Afrobeats has become so popular? So I'm sure we all know Afrobeats. Well, let me not make that assumption. Some of us might not. Um, but Afrobeats is this currently trending uh, genre of music on the continent and beyond uh, that I don't really know how to describe it except to say that when you hear it, you know that it's Afrobeats. I, I somehow just know that. Like I have an Afrobeats playlist and I can't tell you how I know a song is Afrobeats except that when I hear it, I just add it to my Afrobeats playlist. But I would say that it's largely music that's coming from uh, West Africa, particularly Nigeria. So a lot of that Nigerian contemporary music that's coming out of, of that country tends to be, I suppose, what we perceive or perceive as Afrobeats and what is Afrobeats. Um, and I think <laughs> one funny thing that I often uh, kind of think to myself about is how young kids of today are going to probably have these stories, you know, about 20 years from now, about how grown-ups would make them dance at parties, because that's a thing. I think a lot of um, uh, families do that to kids. They're like, hey, come and dance for us. It's Christmas. It's your birthday. You know, just dance. And I would say that a lot of Christmas music or party music at this at this point in time, there's always a few Afrobeat songs. And there's some that have just become kind of signature songs. And, you know, everyone will know them, you know. And so kids of today will be like, oh, yes, that song. Do you remember when they'd make us dance when... You know, this song, is it called Flex? I'm not even sure what that song is called, but it's like, I want to flex my love. Eh. And, you know, one of those songs and, um, you know, Calm Down. There's a song called Calm Down. Like, you always hear those at parties. And so I'm sure kids will be like, oh, goodness, do you remember the times they'd make us dance to those songs? But, yeah, um, African uh, music taking this interesting uh, role or uh, stage and, you know, making use of social media. And so, you know, I mean, there's been a few articles that have been written about the role of uh, social media in 
leveraging Afrobeats. I mean, also you have some Western musicians, for instance, Ed Sheeran collaborating with Afrobeats uh, musicians. And so the genre is just, you know, kind of gone in so many different directions and into so many different spaces. Um, and so the question is obviously, is it is it that social media is its driver or you know, is something else driving the rise of, of Afrobeats? So going back to the content um, around this, I, I obviously looked it up, tried to get a sense of you know, what uh, other people had to say about that. And I found this quite interesting article uh, on Quartz um, online magazine about the rise of Afrobeats and its use of social media. I found other places that also talked about that. Um, and um, one of the things that um, was quite clear was that a few commentators felt that uh, Afrobeats had grown to its, its sort of following or its reach because of the existence of social media. With apps like TikTok, Instagram, uh, and YouTube that allow people to access this content uh, and then dance to the Afrobeat songs or use the songs uh, in their creation of their own content. That is a very obvious way that social media has had a role in augmenting the reach of Afrobeats, which we can say might not have been the place that other um, genres of music African music in the past would have had access or reach. Uh, but then going back to this Quartz article, I, I'll quote a few things from it. And the first thing that they say in that article is, and I quote, the global reach of Afrobeats has had a lot to do with the power of social media platforms like YouTube and Twitter and the innovative ways that small independent labels and artists in the early days of developing the sound jumped on these distribution platforms to share their music. So uh, not only from a user perspective, there is also uh, the perspective of the labels and the artists who also use social media uh, to push their music out. So users and creators um, equally used a lot of social media for, uh, for content to go viral or to reach different audiences. And also, you know, the role of the diaspora is mentioned in this article, and that's something that's very key to always, I guess, situate, uh, you know, diasporan Africans looking for content from the continent, feeling nostalgic and homesick, and then, you know, turning to social media to get access to content that, um, you know, just creates a, a, a feel or a sense of home. Um, I'll quote again from this article, and um, the next thing that this article says is, quote, the rise of the Afrobeat sound came alongside the growth of the major mobile operators like MTN and GLOW. And so these are uh, West African, well, MTN, I think, well, MTN is everywhere, but GLOW, I think, is particularly West African, um, and I could be wrong. It, it might be beyond West Africa, but I know it from West Africa. Uh, so the, the growth of major mobile operators like MTN and Glow, who competed for customers as they raced to build new markets. One way to do that was to tap into the popularity of the artists and make them the faces of their brands. So that's another really important 
aspect of the growth of Afrobeats to look at is the role that uh, mobile com companies played um, in actually augmenting the reach. They were competing for customers, and so they they did this by tapping into these, these, these artists and using them as brand ambassadors. But also, another thing that this article says that they did was developing a market for ringback tones. Um, and, and it says, as I, and I quote, there was a time you couldn't, call, you, you couldn't call almost anyone in Nigeria without hearing a song playing in place of a traditional ringtone. Most of those songs were Afrobeats tunes, and were a key source of revenue for the artists and fledgling local music, music businesses in the early days. It wasn't insignificant ancillary revenue for the tel telecoms companies either. Some industry estimates put the market subsector at 100 million US dollars a year, end quote. And so there were all these different ways that telecoms companies were playing these big roles in building the audience for Afrobeats. Firstly, I think most importantly, within the West African space, within Nigeria itself, where most Afrobeats music comes from. And you know, Nigeria has this massive population of almost 200 million people. And so that's a huge market. Um, and you know, with telecoms companies having, uh, trying to get more hold in the sector, you know, the use of these Afrobeat songs as ringtones and the use of Afrobeat musicians as brand ambassadors obviously plays this big role um, in the growth of, of Afrobeats. And then you combine that with the diaspora, and Nigeria has also got a very vast diaspora. Um, and then you just look at the West African region itself and its diasporas, that's already a massive market. And then it sort of goes really viral and hits the rest of the continent and the rest of the world. But my question is, can we solely, and I, I don't mean solely as in that's the only thing that, that's de facto. Obviously, Afrobeats music has to be good music. Any music that becomes popular has to be good music. So you can't put one factor as the be all and end all of why it's popular. Um, but I'm trying to isolate the social media argument and ask, is that the reason why Afrobeats became popular? Is that the, the make or break? Without social media, would Afrobeats be what Afrobeats is? And it kind of made me think about a memory I have. This is about 10 years ago. Um, and I was in Nairobi. I had gone for something work-related in Kenya, Nairobi. And um, you know, my friends were like, hey, let's go out. It was a Friday night. Um, and I was like, sure, let's go out. And they took me to this club. And you know, it was great, like music, people dancing, uh, and a lot of American music, Western music, uh, R&B, hip hop, that sort of vibe. And then the DJ just moved into this house set. So there is a form of house. There's, I think, a more Western uh, house genre. And then there's South African house, which is uh, somewhat similar. But you know, it's, I think it's a bit different. It, it's a bit more acoustic. 
uh, has integration of you know drum sounds and things like that, um, very African artifacts. And you know this DJ went into his Southern African house or South African house set, and he just started playing this music that, for me, it took me out of the experience. So I have this thing sometimes where I'm, a, where I'm part of something, but then I take myself out of it and I observe it from, I don't know, like a fly on the wall. And so I was there, but I was thinking about how weird it was that I was in East Africa and everyone was dancing to South African house. Like, you know, wow. Like they were just so into it. And so one of the songs was Kona by Mafigi Zolo who have become you know, one of the staples, uh, staple musicians across the continent. Most people would know Mafigi Zolo. But I've known Mafigi Zolo since back in the day. You know, like I remember when they started out and they were very much um, a South African uh, label or, or group. Um, and then obviously because of a regional dynamic, Southern Africans start tapping into um, their music, and they become a little bit more popular because you know Southern Africa as a region is interested in what they're doing. But for me, that was the first time I really got a sense that they were getting bigger beyond the region because this was a completely different region, and they were doing, you know, like people knew their music, um, and they did have some. They had a time when they had this these songs that everyone knew, and so the song that was playing was Kona. And it was just really interesting to watch people who didn't uh, have context of the words uh, or the meaning of the words. But then every time the chorus played, they're just like, Kona, Kona. And then, you know, the DJ goes into the next song and equally, they know this music. And, you know, at that time, this is about 10 years ago. Again, social media is playing a role already. That's probably how a lot of people came to this music and came to know of it. Uh, and so, again, we can use some of the arguments about why Afrobeats has become as popular um, in, in that way. And, you know, it's, it's equally an important thing to think about because why would Southern Africans, even beyond South Africa, have access to this music? Um, and that also has a lot to do with beyond just the culture, beyond people moving between South Africa and their home countries a little bit more and getting access to the culture there. I mean, South Africa is a hub for Southern Africa. A lot of people from Zimbabwe, Zambia, Lesotho, Swaziland, Malawi, Mozambique, etc., would travel to South Africa at some point for uh, work or to get access to resources or something. Um, and so a as a result of that, you are obviously exposed to a culture and you become a little bit more conversant in it. But for those who may not travel as much, you know, social media, uh, local radio stations playing that music play a role. But beyond that, we have to assume again that social media is playing a role, but also ro local radio stations are probably playing more of that music as it becomes more and more popular. But then I then just had to go all the way back and ask myself, well, how, how did it work before there was social media? How did we learn about different African music genres? 
And this took me all the way back to my childhood because um, as a young, as a kid, uh, I, I remember us being exposed to musicians, particularly from West Africa, and I'd say particularly from Senegal and, and that general region. You know, one of those musicians was Ismail Lowe. Um, there's also Baba Mal, um, Salif Kaita, he's from Mali, um, and um, a few others that, you know, we just grew up listening to their music. And I think many people from a generation would also say that they knew of this music. And the question I had was why or how did we know about this music? What was going on? Now, I remember a lot of things. <laughs> Sometimes I surprise myself with what I remember, but I do remember that there used to be something called Ertna um, at that time. And I just remember watching programs on TV and, you know, they would end with something saying this is a production of Ertna. And so I, I associated, you know, a, a lot of this music that came from other regions of the continent with Ertna. And sure enough, that is actually accurate because Ertna was uh, the Union of National Radio and Television of Africa. Um, and it had these, um, it had these very interesting pan-African, um, I guess, dynamics or um, intentions. And, you know, once you do a bit of a dip deeper dive into something, that's when you kind of get to a point where you're like, oh, so that's why that was happening. And that's exactly what was happening with Ertna. Um, it was a union of broadcasters across the continent who were uh, working in the different languages of colonization, French, Arabic, English. And this was a professional body which um, was composed of different national radio and TV uh, stations of the different African uh, countries. Uh, and, you know, its aim was to develop broadcasting in Africa and to, ex to exchange culture, um, particularly indigenous content and to, to see different parts of Africa having conversations or content that was pan-African, that uh, spanned the different cultures, languages um, of the continent. And, you know, when I found out it was headquartered in Dakar in Senegal, it, yeah, a lot of things started to make sense. I was like, oh, yeah, but, you know, why were we particularly exposed to Senegalese music and Senegalese musicians? Um, and so, yeah. Uh, that was what was happening. You know, we had, uh, at the time, we still have uh, the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation. It's kind of now called ZTV instead. Um, but yeah, we would watch uh, a lot of programs on ZTV. Um, and they were, you know, sometimes music programs, particularly. And, you know, they'd have all these musicians that had this really great music. No one really knew what they were singing again. You know, it's mostly French content. Um, but they became staples because uh, ZBC was part of this union of African broadcasters. And there was this exchange of content across the continent that was, you know, giving people access to uh, different African culture and different African cultural artifacts.
Now, um, this union was founded in 1962, and um, you know this kind of coincides with the time of um, you know the Pan-African movement towards um, independence of African countries under colonization, and so it, it just makes so much sense that you know with this Pan-African ideal that was sweeping across the continent, that uh, not only were were, were these countries waging wars, um, they were also, I suppose, waging cultural wars, if I can call it that. They were trying to uh, reinforce the importance of African culture in different African countries and the exchange of it. Um, and you see this as well with other things that were happening, literature. Um, there was something called the Heinemann series, which was um, uh, a series of books that were published um, around these, these same times of this Pan-African movement. Um, you know, writers that became staples across different parts of the continent, Chinua Achebe, Wole Shoyinka, Ama Ataidu, a lot of West African uh, voices. And that I think largely has to do with the fact that West Africa as a region were, was one of the, um, was a frontline region, I'd say, in getting independence. You know, a lot of West African countries got their independence years before, for instance, some countries in Southern Africa. And so, you know, this exporting of West African culture to the rest of the continent um, with, I suppose, the hopes and the ideals that, uh, you know, everyone gets free and we eventually engage in more Pan-Africanism and we build the continent that way. Uh, so it's quite interesting when you think about it and you say, oh, hang on. So before social media, there was a different way that there was the sharing of uh, African culture. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of people have these memories because I, I went on Twitter and I found um, a Kenyan Twitter account that was saying, you know, oh, with, with thanks to Ertna, we became exposed to so much um, indigenous culture and indigenous music. And so one has to ask if it's necessarily uh, the, the use of social media that has led to... Uh, Afrobeat's uh, meteoric rise, or if at every given time in history, we will find that um, whatever technology is happening to be used at that time, it will be used to funnel and channel culture and content. Because we can see that, you know, across the history of mankind, you know, the printing press is, is created and then all, all of a sudden there's books and then there's an exchange of culture happening. And now we're talking about a time when a different kind of media was popular, which is broadcasting and television. And so the use, again, of a different media uh, or medium, well, these are pop plural, so media, to channel uh, content and culture. But I think what's also equally important is to think about how we have, at the same time, an ideology. So Pan-Africanism was a very big ideology at that time um, and very important uh, for 
galvanizing different parts of the continent towards fighting for independence and freedom and liberation. And so you have an ideology that's also pushing uh, the growth of, uh, well, not the growth, but then the intentions behind the movement of culture. So we can say, well, at that time, there was the appropriate technology, and that was what was working out. At this time, we have a new appropriate technology. We have social media. It's a completely different way of engaging. Radio and broadcast are dying out. And so this becomes the new way of engaging and exchanging ideas. Is there an ideology that's pushing it? Well, one can say yes, one can say no. I think there is still the constant challenge or struggle for Africa and Africans uh, to be seen as uh, people of agency and to see the cultures of Africa as cultures um, of relevance um, or of, uh, I suppose, the same kind of respectability as Western cultures. Uh, and Eastern cultures. And so I wouldn't say there's necessarily as big an ideology behind uh, the movement of this cultural uh, phenomenon, but there is, you know, I think underlying it is, hey, you know, isn't it great that we have this really great, cool music that's coming out of the continent or that is coming out of African artists that you know, is engaging the rest of the continent, but then also the world. And so I think it's, it's, it's important to unpack some of that, to really understand what's going on and why. And so my summary to this argument is, yes, social media has played an important role. Uh, but then there's all these other different factors. Telecommunications company co companies come into play as well, uh, and their distribution methods, their uses of brand ambassadors, obviously create brand recognition or um, artist recognition. And everything starts to happen, I suppose, mostly firstly within the, the West African uh, space and the West African diaspora, and then social media plays this big role in uh, creating virality of content, and then you know everyone starts to get access to this content, and therefore it becomes as big as it is. Uh, it's a very different way, I suppose, of working to other generations or other times when people had exposure to the same kind of cultural movement of content. Um, the underlying reasons were very different. You know, they were perhaps more ideological. They were rooted perhaps more in an idea of exchange of culture and content. There was more of an intention versus now it seems more of an entertainment uh, value that is added to people's lives. I don't think most Afrobeats music is trying to reach people with a specifically political pan-African um, idea. So I think it's always interesting to unpack things and really get a sense of um, where they come from and why and how they become viral or how they become important. Um, because yes, social media is absolutely important um, and it's absolutely playing a role in shifting our dynamics of engagement and knowledge. But there's always somewhere, somehow, 
examples of something working in a very different way. Um, and, you know, the resistance, the pushbacks, the ideologies, the countercultures, everything, you know, there's always something. It, it's just a different time with different tools. Because I think essentially human beings are, uh, what is the word I want to use? Predictable. I think we are all essentially trying to achieve the same things. And because we're just born in different generations, we are using whatever is accessible to us at that point to make a movement. And so sometimes things happen unintentionally, but sometimes they happen intentionally. Um, we can say that um, the generation before of the music we're talking about was a very intentional movement. And you can say Afrobeats was not as intentional. However, there was a lot of intention. You know, telecoms companies were very intentional in what they were doing. Perhaps not to the extent that Afrobeats has grown to now, but they were intentional in some direction and they moved the needle in that way. And then, you know, everything else moved the needle in a different way. So that's my little offering for today. And this is really what I mean when I talk about digital sociology. This is essentially what digital sociology is. It's not just looking at the tool or how it works, but it is looking at how it's situated within culture and what's happening with culture and history at that point in time that is making it move. So I hope that's given you food for thought and I hope that you have a good rest of your week. Take care until the next episode. Yeah.